Yo, my daughter destroys me. Sarah just said, my daughter makes fun of me big time. She kills me. Oh, I got three of them. I have I have three daughters that are eagerly waiting to make fun of me once this hits YouTube. It's coming. And since, right. You know, and since they spend you know half their waking life on YouTube, they'll probably see it before I will. Hearing the personal stories and perspectives from our friends in the industry is what makes Teague Talk so special. I'm your host, Teague Hunter. This week, I'm joined with David Sotoloff, Managing Director of Alliance Bernstein. David's going to answer all of our burning questions on where the debt market is today and gives us his crystal ball for 2024. David Sotoloff, welcome. Thank you for joining me, sir. Thanks for having me. Get with, sorry, I'm picking on you. Sotoloff, what, what is, where, where's Sotoloff from? Well, uh, it's Russian. Uh, by descent. Yeah. I'm pretty sure when my great-grandparents came here, it wasn't Sotolov. It probably had some Zs and Ys and more Us in it, but it became Sotolov, and so uh, that's where we're going with now. All right. Where are you calling me from? You, you That's LA, sunny Southern California. I, I, I'm in LA. I'm in Century City. Uh, it's bustling. Uh, people in the office. It's great. In the office in LA. Yeah. That's, that's, exci- that's exciting. That's exciting. Good times. It's something. It's something. Uh, okay, I want to do this. I want to talk about debt. I want to talk about all the Alliance Bernstein. I want to talk about rates and where they're going and can I get a loan today and what that looks like. But as always, uh, I got to know who is David Sotoloff. Um, talk to me. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? How'd you get into the industry? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I grew up here in Los Angeles. Uh, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley and uh, I followed in my parents' footsteps like a lot of us do and went to UCLA. Um, actually studied geology and civil engineering in college. You weren't at the famous hotel school at UCLA? That I, I was not did. in anything close to hotel or business or economics or any of the sort. You I studied spent, geology. Uh, what were you going to do spent, with geology? Sorry? You studied geology? What were you going to do with a geology major? Yeah, yeah. I spent I spent about a quarter of my college years uh, sleeping in tents uh, up in the Sierras or out in the middle of the desert. Um, and at the time, I I could never imagine a future where I'd dress like this, sitting in an office like this. I wanted to be outside breathing fresh air and and thought I might go be a civil engineer. I thought I might go work for the EPA or do something more creative. Uh, that, so is- that, that was what late teens and early 20s David thought he was going to do. Sure, because save the planet and the like, right? Absolutely. The outside, yeah, bankers are boring. That's right. That's right. So what what made you become a banker? So yeah. So what went wrong? Well, yeah. uh, so my my last year of college, uh, I ran out of money, and um, my college roommate at the time had an older brother who worked at a bank, and said, "Do you think your brother would give me a part time job just for a year to get me through school?" He's like, "Yeah, no problem." And so I got a job at a bank, and uh, I worked there part time my last year, and. And uh, when I got ready to graduate and I told my boss at the time I'm applying for civil engineering jobs, he freaked out and thought, I I can't lose my lunch, buddy. Uh, So at the time, he offered me a full time job, which being a broke college student, I jumped at the opportunity to take. And 25 years later, the rest is history. That is hilarious. That is I, I mean, I love those stories. All right. Keep what bank was that, though? 
So uh, that was a small thrift here uh, in LA called Southern Pacific Bank. And we would originate small balance loans and sell them to primarily a larger bank called Fremont Investment and Loan. And so I actually immediately ended up transitioning directly to Fremont um, right out of school um, as we were growing our direct origination business and started in asset management. And after a couple of years, migrated into loan origination and, uh, and it was great. So you're learning the whole the whole system of how banking works. Yeah, yeah, not not in the classroom in 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 work, which yeah. in hindsight uh, was amazing. It was amazing, and 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 probably a much more rapid fire education in terms of how the banking and finance system works that you wouldn't have gotten in a econ class or a, or, a, or a finance class. Uh, yeah, 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 right. I'm not saying why I go to school, but. You studied geology. You get to mature for four years. I can read a phase one. So, so, uh, so where were you? So now I'm thinking, when did you graduate? I'm trying to think where you were during the GFC and how what experiences you learned there. Yeah, yeah. So I graduated '99. Um, yeah. So started right out right out of school at Fremont, and it was a great run. Fremont was growing rapidly pre GFC. Um, at least the commercial real estate side was. Uh, we had this other side of the bank uh, that did subprime residential mortgages. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I still remember the day uh, I think I was sitting at a Lakers Suns basketball game in 2007 when I got a email on my Blackberry that said we'd been served with a cease and desist order. And, uh, you know, the commercial side was doing fine still. Uh, so it was really the resi side that prompted it. And then it was a uh, immediate thought of, well, do I come into work tomorrow? What do we do? What do we do here? Uh, so it was a wild time. Yeah. I, so what did you do? Did you stay? Did you have to come work all the loans out that you had made? Or did you everybody go look for a new job? Yeah, so we did all the above. Uh, we immediately started looking to see if there were new jobs, uh, which at that time right. there really weren't. Nope. And so uh, within three months uh, or so, the commercial uh, loan side of the bank was sold to iStar, which was a public REIT that was in rapid growth mode. And at the time, iStar was about an $8 billion REIT, and we were about an $8 billion commercial book at the bank. And so it was a one transaction, they doubled in size and we all got onboarded in July of 2007. So big acquisition, interesting time. All right. So, uh, all right. So keep going. So ha keep going. I want to know how you ended up at Alliance Bernstein. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I stayed at, at iStar really, we worked out the portfolio over the next five, six years. And then finally, uh, early mid mid twenty teens, got back in the market in lending. Um, yeah. And around twenty eighteen, the company pivoted to a pure play ground lease REIT, and that's when iStar took public uh, a company called Safehold, which is a publicly traded ground lease REIT, the first one, uh, and really shifted the focus of the company to just being a ground lease REIT. Um, I made the decision personally at that point that I was going to, I was going to move on uh, and take the second job of my life after 19 years. And uh, I was, I was recruited to come join Annaly, uh, Annaly Capital Management to open an office in LA and grow their commercial lending group on the West coast. Uh, and so 
I did that for a couple of years. It, it ultimately did not work out. It was not a great fit for Annaly, which is really more of a residential mortgage-backed security firm. Yep. Uh, and so back in 2020, early COVID days, uh, back when we were all sort of wearing masks in our cars and washing our groceries, uh, Alliance Bernstein reached out and um, and asked if I'd be interested in, in coming on board. And so I knew the platform because the platform had actually been started eight years prior by the former president of iStar. So it was my former boss that had left to launch the commercial group here at Alliance Bernstein. I, so I'd known the platform. I'd watched them grow. I knew a lot of the people here. So when they reached out in 2020, it was in a period of rapid capital expansion for the business at Alliance Bernstein. Uh, we'd taken on a couple new capital accounts and we're really growing the business. And, and so I knew the people and I knew it was a great group of people. And when you added the new capital and the commitment that the firm was putting behind the platform, it was yeah. a no-brainer. It was a no-brainer to come over here. So uh, I want you to explain um, the nuances of Alliance Bernstein, but I, I just got to go back real fast. It's funny, the GFC, um, I think you in your story, it took five years. That's part of what we all sort of kind of forget, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it's so kind of thinking of the current uh, current situation we're in. Like, COVID kind of came, I mean, it was here for a while, but it sort of came and went financially. We're like, yeah, yeah, it's okay. The GFC was five years. You tried yeah. to have money, you just sort of couldn't. And it couldn't. And I'm wondering, are we going to come smooth out from where we are right now? Or is it? Or are we going to linger around for a while? Have the effects Look, not I, in? I, I remain an optimist, um, which may not, it may be abnormal for me personally, but I do in this instance. Uh, you know, the big difference that I see now versus 2009, 2010, 2011 there's still a lot of capital. Yeah. There's just a lot of liquidity in all aspects. There's lenders right. with lots of liquidity. It's coming from different places. It's not coming from the banking sector, but there's life companies with liquidity. There's debt funds. There's private equity moving into real estate debt. And then there's equity groups that are sitting on a lot of liquidity. I I don't remember that being the case in 2009, 10, and 11. The bottom fell out. And there was no liquidity. And so this feels more like a deleveraging and a, and a re an asset revaluation exercise. Um, that's not what the GFC was, right? The GFC was just a, a massive uh, absence of liquidity and it was hard to peg any value for, for, for a long time. Yeah, it's funny when people ask me, my experiences from the GFC is, you know, everybody wants deals and discounts and I'm and deep discounts. And I'm like, yeah, that comes when everyone runs out of money. And guess what? When everyone yeah. runs out of money, so do you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so now you get, and as long as you have money, that means others have money, which means there aren't really there aren't really that big deals. It's not that yeah, I mean, recession that's here. That's here. And, and look, it, it, it may be in hindsight, a lot of us, whether we're lenders, whether we're equity investors, learned lessons in the GFC and implored those lessons to avoid the bottom falling out this time. Yeah, we should dive into that, such as 65% LTV rather than 90. Yeah, and more, I think more conservative leverage, you know, back then you had the CBOs, you had leverage on leverage on leverage. Yeah, yeah yes. you know, the, the regulations put in place that didn't allow lenders to do that this time. And, and I think a lot of the lenders were just uh, more conservative and more disciplined. 
And so that's certainly one lesson we're learning. There's, you know, there's some talk about the CLO market and what's going to happen with some of those loans. But even within the CLO market, I think the lenders have maintained cash balances to protect themselves if they need. And I think lenders are just more willing to work with borrowers. Yes. At least that's what we're seeing thus far. It feels that way, right? Yeah. They're working, even the ones that we're doing for lenders, they're all working together. It's all sort of friendly and they're going to work it out. I think it's going to be a nice solution for everybody. Yeah, I, mean, I hope so. Except for the equity holders that got wiped out. But, you know, I digress. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> all right. So talk, let's talk about Alliance Bernstein specifically. I want to sort of compare and contrast them to the other. What's their platform like compared to sort of other platforms? Yeah. So we are, we're about a 10 billion AUM group on the commercial real estate side. We fall under the private alternative investment arm of the Alliance Bernstein Mothership, which is a large both institutional and private wealth management firm. And so within the commercial real estate group, we've got a series of separate managed accounts and a series of commingled funds. The separate accounts are primarily with large insurance companies. Yeah. And the funds are either institutional funds with LPs that are also insurance companies or pensions. And then we have one fund that's actually uh, sourced with private individual high net worth investors. And so it's, it's a broad spectrum of capital and each sleeve of capital sort of has its own risk tolerance and return threshold. And so they all complement each other and some are fixed rates, some are floating rate. So it provides us with a lot of tools you know, hopefully to service the same clients, but across a broader spectrum of their assets. And so we're doing lots of different, uh, all asset classes, not just hotels. We're doing all asset classes, right? So talk to me, do we have a favorite asset class? Do we have a least favorite asset class right now? Yeah, I mean, look, we, we've historically always been diverse across all asset classes, right? I think the market in general, this is not gonna be a novel statement, but it feels today like there's office, and then there's all the other office asset classes, right? And so, you know, look, the, the bar is exceedingly high on office. I would never say never um, because I do think there are going to be some interesting opportunities. I'm not sure when and where, um, but there are. But I think the reality is anyone that's been active over the last few years also has existing office exposure. Yes. And we still need to, we still need to see how that existing exposure plays out. And it's still early. What's your and, how does office play out? Look, I, I think long-term um, people are going to migrate back. Absolutely. I think it's going to be different type of office space that they're going to want. It's going to be different utilization of the office space. But I do think long-term the demand will come back. Um, and again, not a novel statement, but I think it's going to come back in the higher quality office space um, that has more amenities that gives employees a reason to come back and gives employers a reason to bring their people back. You know, the, the stale vanilla 80s, 70s vintage office that is walking distance from nothing and has nothing to offer in the building, why would you go in? It's fairly simple, right? Unless you have to. Unless, Unless you, you have, have to. to. Yeah. Unless you have to. And so... Um, look, I think, I think the, the other asset classes, you know, fundamentals feel pretty good across the board, honestly. Um, you know, there's some softening and there's some slowing in growth, but the fundamentals feel, feel okay. I think what we're seeing in the debt space, you know, multifamily and industrial remains the darlings of the dance. Yep. Um, but those asset classes are not the easiest to structure loans for. 
uh, frankly. Um, you know, the, the challenge with those is in the zero interest rate environment we had before Ukraine and rates start rising, cap rates compressed so tight, there was no margin for error. And so as short-term rates expanded, you know, now for one of the first times in my career, I'm looking at 60% loan to value loans on stabilized assets that don't cover debt service. And so that's a weird thing to do. And so what do you do with that loan, right? And so hotels have become increasingly attractive, honestly, over the last 12 months, because I think what happened from a, from a timing perspective coming out of COVID, when we were in that zero interest rate environment, there was still some concerns, Every operations were ramping. You didn't have that same cap rate compression. Right. So when rates rose, hotels could actually absorb those increased short-term rates. And so we're looking at those same 60% loan-to-value hotel loans. They've got great debt coverage. And as a lender, we generally like loans that can cover their debt service. So <laughs> It's a good rule of thumb to stick by. Yeah, it helps. Get, just get nerdy. Where, where were rates and where are rates? Give me apartments because you just talked about it and then, and then go to hotels. Where were they and where are they now? Yeah, I think spreads on, on floating rate basis, spreads on multifamily were, you know, for a down the fairway, 70% loan to value loan, multi and industrial uh, two and a half, three years ago, were in the high twos. You know, I think they gapped out into the mid threes and then it was low threes. And I think we're almost back to where they were. Okay. All right. Um, and I, I don't think it's necessarily, we talk about it a lot internally, is it because there's less risk in the market or in the system? I actually don't think that's it so much as there's not a lot of product to lend on. But we were, as we were talking earlier, there's a lot of liquidity out there looking for product to lend on. And so that supply demand imbalance, I think what we're seeing is when there are good quality cash flowing assets in the market for financing, they're getting a lot of bids. And spreads are compressing as a result. So again, that's the spread. That's the 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 you guys vig, right? So you're, right. you're at let's call it three hundred, right? Give or take. Yeah. Kicker is the base rate went from zero up to five. Oops. Oops. It's not. Yeah. Uh, it's not a good day when you're leveraging a, a five and a half cap asset at eight percent. That one. That that's a that's a tough one. So how do you get that done, or do we just don't get that done? And then it both begs the question: When are we going to get that done? Yeah, look, I think um, it's interesting. It's interesting for us because our platform does have fixed rate capital, okay. and so we're constantly looking yeah. at each deal and saying, does it make sense as a fixed rate loan, or does it make sense as a floater? And so if we're lending on a fixed rate basis in the low two hundreds or two hundred over treasuries. Well, that's only six and a quarter percent coupon. And so that feels a lot better than an eight. Right. And uh, so as a result, I think the, the demand for the fixed rate product has exceeded floating rate by multiples. Um, and we've gotten fairly creative with how we're structuring our fixed rate loans. And so our, our typical five-year fixed rate loan, which looked like a traditional five-year fixed life company loan a few years ago, is now much more flexible and looks structurally like a bridge loan in a lot of cases with you know two to three years of yield maintenance and some extended open period on the back end. 
um, where we can provide the borrower with a lower coupon going in, uh, but they're not going long. And if rates drop or they're bridging to a sale, they don't have to wait five years. They can they can execute that transaction in two and a half, three, three and a half years. Uh, I, I love that because that's been the problem, right? We, we love the CMBS and the rate. We don't like the handcuffs. We don't want to keep it for 10 years. So, right. we can, so if we can add some flexibility. You're telling me that that's coming and that's just sort of market driven that we need it. Is there a cost? There's got to be a cost to that, right? What's the cost? Yeah, look, there's there's a little bit of cost. Every, every loan for us, because all of our loans are held on balance sheet, we have the ability to sort of write bespoke loan structures. And then there's really no two, no two loans on the fixed rate side have been the same over the last 12 to 18 months. Um, and so, yeah, more flexibility, slightly more cost. But I think when you compare that to the initial coupon on a floating rate loan, plus the cost associated with buying interest rate caps and all the other bells and whistles, it, it, it still, it still is beneficial. G give me an example. What's, I don't know, the last deal you did or the one you're working on. Like, give me, what's a deal look like? Yeah. So we're, I mean, we're looking at a hotel deal right now in New York. That's uh, that's got great cash flow. It's a 10 ish year old asset. Um, it's got a low teens debt yield going in and the sponsors bridging to either a sale or a full pip in the next three to five years. Okay, and so they can they can go do a floating rate bridge loan, a three plus one plus one bridge loan, and that's probably going to price in the mid to high threes over SOFR. So you're talking about eight and a half to nine percent money day yeah. one, or you can look at a fixed rate loan that may get to the same leverage, maybe slightly lower leverage. But in, if you're if you're doing a fixed rate loan in say the mid twos over treasuries, then your coupon's six seventy five. So, okay, unless short term rates come down quickly, you're going to be saving a fair amount of money on interest for uh, you know a year or two at least on the front end by going through a fixed rate route. And so then the question becomes. How long are you locked in? What's your ability to get out? What kind of flexibility do you have? And so on a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, we're actually putting two options on the table and having a conversation with the borrower of what's your business plan? Which option fits your business plan better? Let's go down that path and then try to create the structure that best fits your business plan. So, all right, help me. What's what's the most important? I know all of them. Trick question here. But uh, what's the most important part in the deal? The 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 sponsor. That's where I'm headed. The asset, the cash flow, the brand. What? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. All of them. No. I, I. So here's how here's how we look at it. Or here's how I look at it. Um, Great. We're going to look at and any responsible lender is going to look at all those all those deal metrics that you just mentioned. We know we're in the business of taking risk. And so for us, it's where are we taking risk and how many layers of risk are we taking on a deal? And so we will look at the deal from all those angles. And if we can identify one, maybe two layers of risk that we're taking, those are deals that we're going to spend more time on and focus on. When it feels like we're taking two, three, four layers of risk, those are generally where we get into trouble, right? And so, look, we can we can lend on a deal that has weak cash flow going in, but it's got a strong business plan to create cash flow, and it's got an experienced sponsor who's contributing real equity, and 
we're really taking the bet on the cash flow. Okay, that's one layer of risk. But that deal with a less experienced sponsor or not a lot of equity coming in, that's where we tend to get in trouble as lenders. And so those are the deals that we we tend to shy away from. All right, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, it, it, we're talking about apartments. We talk about hotels. Any markets that? And you said New York. So that's are we just going the top cities? Like where? What markets do we like better than others? Yeah, I think in the hotel sector, we're typically your top 20, 25 major metros. Some of that's driven by size, right? We typically, our platform typically plays in the 50 million and up loan size range. So we're probably not doing a hotel, one-off hotel in Omaha. Um, so that keeps us pretty honest on markets, on hotels. Who is doing the one-off in, in Omaha? Not that you're doing it, not that you speak for others, but who is doing it? Local bank? I think local bank, if it's really small, we're seeing credit unions still active. Um, you know, there there may be some smaller private debt funds that are doing stuff like that. Um, you're going to pay up for it, uh, but you'll but they'll show up. Yeah. Uh, recourse. Are those that you think of those are all recourse. Um, it, the bank route, I would presume there's going to be some amount of recourse. I think the private debt funds, maybe you're doing it non-recourse, but it, it's going to come at a wider spread. Okay. You're going to pay probably another 100, 150, 200 basis points in the spread. Okay. All right. Sorry. Keep going about the markets. I interrupted. Yeah, look, so we are active in all markets. I think that there are there are some things that um, we see in our own portfolio and in the market that we like. I mean, we're generally across all asset classes, we're looking for markets that have good job growth and good population growth and in migration. And so that drives us to a lot of the markets you hear about all the time, the Texas markets, the Southeast, the Carolinas and Florida. Um, a lot of those are also markets that are adding a ton of supply. And so we have to be careful. Um, but we, we, we are seeing really good performance in our existing book in those markets and, and we're looking hard there. I think, you know, we like coastal markets from the supply constraint perspective, yeah. um, which is nice. Um, but then there's also other aspects to coastal markets. You know, I sit in Los Very Angeles nice. and California where, you know, and this is not in any way, shape or form a political statement, but you can't ignore some of the, you know, laws that have been that have been put in place and the increased taxes and things like that. And so, you know, to the extent that limits growth and limits jobs uh, and limits liquidity in those markets, that's something that we have to keep an eye on. And, it, and it's factoring into conversations and committees that didn't exist three, four or five years ago. Yeah. And it's becoming a real thing. Right. Uh, especially with Jeff Rogers, age in LA and some of the uh, bills that are being proposed or even passed are pretty scary. Look, we can, we can look at supply and underwrite the impact new supply is going to have on fundamentals. I can underwrite that. Yes. I, I can't underwrite waking up in the morning one day and realizing there's a new 5% transfer tax that wasn't there the day before. You know, I can't underwrite, uh, a, a union going on strike and renegotiating and resetting the minimum wage up 20% or 10%. So it it's just things that we as a lender can't underwrite. So does that steer you away from those markets or just more cautious? 
more cautious. I think, you know, it, it's, these are still big markets, right? Look at California. It's, it's multiple big markets in California. So we're not redlining markets, but we have to be eyes open to those factors and we have to be more cautious. All right. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. All right. I want to talk about future, but tell me now, how, how busy are you guys? I mean, I, transaction volume wise, I mean, you looking at a lot, but not doing a lot or are you doing a lot or are you very slow? Um, we're looking at a lot. We're doing a fair amount. Um, and I think we're going to be doing more throughout the rest of the year. I mean, we saw when, when the fed pivoted in November, we saw almost an instantaneous pickup in both the amount of deal flow, yeah. but also the quality of the deal flow. And I think a lot of it was, owners finally saw light at the end of the tunnel and some stability yep. in where long-term rates were going to settle, where cap rates were going to settle. You could underwrite a value. And so, so owners had more conviction behind their assets. And so the volumes and the, and the, the loan requests are still more heavily weighted towards refinancing activity than, than acquisitions, which, you know, we prefer to see more acquisition activity. I think we all were, would. I'm sure you guys would as well. Very biased. More so yes. than me. Yes. Right. And so we're waiting for that. <clears throat> but the refinancing activity, not only has it been better quality assets, but sponsors that have conviction behind their assets and are coming in with additional cash to support them. And so they're more willing to delever the asset today and put more appropriate leverage on to bridge the next few years. They're more willing to put up cash to support shortfalls while short term rates are so high. Uh, and so that increase in activity has carried into this year. Uh, so our pipeline today is as full and I would say as high quality as it has been at any point in the last 15 months. So it's funny. We're seeing the exact same thing, right? We are very busy, very busy on the transaction side, which is great. Great news. Yep. Uh, and oh, by the way, we saw the same thing you just said. So we restarted our capital markets division, right? Charlie Ryan in LA yep. with you. You guys Great are good. Guy. Congratulations. Thank you. Very excited. Um, and the volume there is everyone's got a need. Everyone has a need. It's because I think the world's complicated. The debt is complicated. Nobody's really sure. And you just said yourself that the products are changing, right? From what it was yes. two, three years ago. And I think you need some help and expertise uh, navigating the new world, the new debt world. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, and look, there's the lenders with, with capital to lend. Yes. Uh, and so, like I said earlier, it's coming from a different source. You know, the banks are still not actively lending to borrowers. Yep. The banks are more actively lending to lenders. Yep. And so, you know, you're going to be maybe going to a debt fund instead of a bank to get your loan. Um, but there's still liquidity there and ready to move. You know, I think the one thing to keep in mind is, while there is capital and and motivation to lend on new assets, lenders still have existing books that they're working through. And so I think there's gotta be total acknowledgement on both sides, on the borrower side, that look, lenders are still playing defense while they're playing offense. And that's not the easiest thing to do. And so uh, I think it's the case where we're all sort of working together through this, right? And we understand that the investors are trying to play offense while they're playing defense as well in their existing book. And so I think just being transparent and open with each other always seems to help. And we're having really good conversations with our clients 
about what we're seeing, how can we help them, but also take into account what we're seeing in our own book, because we have to learn from our own book. And, uh, and that's going to, that's going to factor into the new loans that we make. We're um, it's fun. The defense and offense, we, we are seeing, we're seeing the debt, uh, some assets come to market from lenders in conjunction yep. with their equity partner. So very much partnerships and they're coming to market, but those are happening where the majority of the equity has been wiped out, if not all of it, and we're coming to market. So that's starting. We're also seeing, even though there's a lot of liquidity, we're seeing a lot of equity players who are no longer on offense because all the money they've got, they're holding to keep the assets that are currently their legacy assets uh, in play. So there's a lot of yin and yang happening right now, even though we both just said there's a lot of liquidity out there. There's a lot of yin and yang happening. So it'll be interesting to see where we go. All right. So give me a prediction uh, for the year and uh, we're going to write it down. And when do rates go down? When do our six (laughs) rates cuts start happening this year? Oh boy. Um, uh, Look, I I think we, our house view and my personal view is consistent with that is they're going to be higher for longer. It's going to be stickier, right? I, I think that the rate cuts start a little bit later and go a little bit slower. And I'm not sure that we have consecutive rate cuts. I think we might have one or two and then a pause. And so, you know, I, I don't see five cuts this year. Uh, maybe there's three, maybe there's four, and maybe they start in, you know, the middle of the year, right? Um, I mean, we're almost there. So I'm not going to look that smart if I'm right. So um, I think the bigger question is, is, is you know, long-term rates, right? Where do they stabilize? Yeah. Where does the 10-year stabilize? And uh, I don't have an econ degree, as we talked about. So I'm not sure. Um, and frankly, I asked the people here that do have econ degrees, and they're not sure either. And so, you know, as a, again, as a lender, we can't, we can't take that risk. We're not interest rate speculators. And so, you know, it feels like the 10 years sort of trading in this four to four and a half band. And I'm not sure what breaks it out of that band. And so I don't, I don't know that we're any smarter than thinking it's going to stay in that band and cap rates are going to adjust off of that. And there's probably some catalyst out there and I don't know where it comes from. I don't even know what continent it comes from or when, but that breaks it out. And I also don't know what direction it pulls them higher or lower. So for now we sort of underwrite as though they're going to stay in that band. Yeah. Which again is good. We keep saying we can play within any the game within any rules we just want another rule stop changing we can play uh other comments uh how do you lower rates when the stock market's at an all-time high right fair point we're gonna gonna (laughs) choose the economy when it's already going gangbusters okay fine uh so there's some disconnect here and then oh by the way when you do to your point when you do reduce rates that means something happens somewhere in the economy, in the global world that we needed to juice the economy. Yeah. So there was a slowdown somewhere so that we had to increase it. Yeah. Fundamentally. Yeah. Look, I think the one thing we are, I would say, concerned about is if the catalyst is the consumer gets hit really hard by this yeah. protracted, elevated short-term mm-hmm. interest rate, that's going to hurt us in real estate. I mean, it's going to hurt hotels, it's going to hurt apartments, it's going to hurt us in real estate. And so um, that's one thing in the back of our mind is that the fundamentals feel good, consumers still pretty healthy. 
Yes. But you're starting to see some early signs of that, even that eroding. Uh, and so we'll have to wait and see. Expert advice from a expert <laughs> banking advice from a geologist. <laughs> there you go. Write it down. <laughs> uh, David, this is fantastic. You're the best. Thank you for the time. Thanks for letting me pick your brain. Thanks for sitting down with us. Uh, glad to introduce you uh, formally to the Teague Talk universe. Thank you very much. Appreciate Welcome. it. David Sotoloff. Take care.